0: This is "What Is to Be Done?" Part Two, <clears throat> and uh, our panelists uh, for this session are uh, to uh, to my immediate left is Bowman Cutter, uh, is a senior fellow and director of the Next American Economy Project at the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, He also served in a number of Democratic administrations, in the Carter Administration OMB, in the Clinton Administration National Economic Council, and you were also on the Obama Administration Transition Team. Um, To my far left is Bob Strom, uh, Director of Research and Policy at the Ewing Marion Kauffman Foundation. Um, To my right is Michael Mandel, Chief Economic Strategist at the Progressive Policy Institute and long-time chief economist at Business Week before that. Uh, And finally, Susan Dudley, who's director of the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center Center, uh, and was director of uh, OIRA uh, in the Office of Management and Budget during the George W. Bush administration. So uh, lots of uh, policy wonk chops and real-world political experience on today's panel. Uh, Let's start with you, Susan. Uh, We all, uh, all of you... uh, took your stab at waving the magic wand uh, on uh, one or more occasions, so uh, tell me uh, what your magic mm-hmm. trick is.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Let, let me first thank you for doing this today. I've been I've been here for the whole day and it really has been fascinating, I've enjoyed it all. Um, well let me start by saying that, um, well I'm the director of the Regulatory Study Center so of course I'm going to talk about regulation some regulation is necessary. Entrepreneurs need that, they need rules of the road in order to, um, to be entrepreneurs, to, um, to invest, enter into contracts, and to be able to innovate in ways that, that, um, that satisfy consumer demands. But I think we're at a stage where we've gone beyond what's needed um, to have, what, the rules that are needed to have an efficient, competitive market. Every um, crises, perceived or real, lead to new legislation and new le- new regulation, um, which often or almost always confers competitive advantage on one party while a disadvantage on another. And what that does is that leads to, um, to um, productive or what would have been productive talent and energy being channeled into seeking government favors as opposed to entrepreneurial activities that would lead lead to the kind of growth the last panel was talking about, the creativity, the risk-taking. Because seeking the government failures is at best a zero-sum proposition as opposed to a a growth um, and innovative proposition. In the US, we've had long-standing procedures for getting notice and comment on regulations for benefit-cost analysis, which previous panels talked a little bit about, but it really hasn't been enough and if you want we could talk more about why. Um, but I, So I think fundamental change is needed. So with this wand, um, what I would like to do is grant humility
2: on the government
1: regulatory process. So I have three recommendations that are related to that. Um, First is we should do a better job of appreciating that the role that competition and individual choice has in in regulating behaviors that are undesirable. We live in a very diverse nation with um, different circumstances of time and place and different preferences. And so one size fits all top down regulatory strategies, they reduce competition and they reduce choice, and we should really we should just avoid them. Um, related to that is I think we should we need to be very skeptical of regulatory proposals that are founded on the notion that um, consumers are irrational. So this this notion that um, behavioral economics has shown us a lot about. Um, the, the biases that we may have in making decisions, and those are valid observations. But we need to apply them to government actors as well as as individual citizens. So my second um, specific action under my humility is that when regulation is necessary, let's make sure that we design it that allows for competition and choice and experimentation. And I don't mean when I was Michael and I were chatting about this. I don't mean you know controlled trials. I mean there are lots of opportunities for natural experimentation and one way to do that is to do more things at state and local levels so that we can see what works in different um, different ways. Um, third, we should do something about the problem of regulatory accumulation and I think Michael will talk more about that. Um, as it, it, Most of us operating in, in our private lives, we learn from our mistakes. And so we're always learning from experience and updating our activities as a result. In regulation, we tend not to do that. We're always looking for the next big problem that we can address with regulations on this assumption that markets fail but somehow regulators are infallible. And we never go back to see whether we, um, whether the outcomes that we predicted actually occurred. Um, And Michael has some ideas on that. So um, I'll conclude that um, We really don't have a counterfactual, you know, all the models that we saw earlier. We don't have a counterfactual that says this is what our growth path would have been if we had a simpler, more straightforward regulatory system. Nevertheless, all the evidence, the cross-country evidence that World Bank and others do, suggests that a simpler system that's more targeted at problems that really only the government can solve would lead to huge benefits in terms of growth, prosperity, well-being, and not just for us, but for future generations. Michael.
3: Thank you. First, I want to say thank you to Brink and uh, the Cato Institute for putting on this conference, which is absolutely terrific and extremely extremely ecumenical, OK? <laughs> and almost to the extreme. Um, having said that, I need to make a point, which is that the Progressive Policy Institute does believe in the importance of regulation, as long as we're at the Cato Institute, okay? But we especially believe in the importance of smart regulation. And so we have two proposals for smart regulation that we think have a possibility of significantly moving the needle and that are also politically feasible. And hope we come back to that later. So my, uh, my first proposal, I want to just point out, how many times do you think Today, the word innovation was mentioned. 50, 100, 200. And we mentioned information technology many, many times. I see Eric coming and sit down, okay. Unless I missed it, we didn't hear very much about the biosciences. And if you look at the amount that the US spends in the aggregate by field, and I include in this companies and government and educational institutions. What you see is uh, the number one area is information technology for R&D at 125 billion. And then following very close behind is biosciences at 100 billion. Now, why didn't we mention it? And this is not true of just this conference. It's basically every conference on innovation. You look around, and we're talking about information technology. We're not talking about biosciences. The answer is is that there's been tremendous progress in research in the biosciences. But the rate at which products have come out, useful breakthrough products that reduce costs, has been much slower. And I'm going to suggest there's something fundamental here. I'm going to suggest that the FDA, for all the best reasons in the world, has turned into a perfect machine for squelching disruptive innovation. Now this is what I mean by disruptive innovation. Disruptive innovation is in the Clayton Christensen sense, innovation that comes in at a lower quality and a lower cost than the existing products. And so the perfect example is the personal computer, vis-a-vis the mainframe. Uh, cell phones, when they first arrived on the scene, was much lower quality than, than landlines. Do you remember those commercials? Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Um, and so the, and we're very all very familiar with the way that disruptive innovation, they come in at a low price, they open up the mark, wider market, and, and what happens is you drive down the cost curve. The problem is that the way that the FDA is set up, you cannot get a disruptive innovation except by accident, because the FDA runs on safety, which is great and shouldn't be changed, and also runs on clinical efficacy. And new treatments, new drugs, and new uh, new, uh, equipment is compared to the stuff that exists already and has to be at least as good. Well, because why should the FDA actually approve something that was worse than is out there? Right? And so what happens is there's a systematic eradication of disruptive innovation, There is a, and and what happens is this perpetuates through the ecosystem because you know, the, the, uh, the companies in these areas are really smart, they're really tied into their regulations, and they're not going to put a lot of money into products, treatments that have no chance of getting through the FDA, pre, uh, FDA screen. Um, and so, uh, simultaneous to this, and I actually uh, uh, use uh, some of Susan's data for this, if you look at the regulatory intensity of the FDA over the last 10 years, from 20, 2000 to 2012, in 2000, the FDA had 12 employees per 1,000 workers in the regulated industries, pharma, medtech, biotech, 12 per 1,000. As of 2012, they had 18 per 1,000, so it was a 50% increase. Similarly, if you look at regulatory intensity by, uh, 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 Alex mentioned the database from Mercatus that sort of looks at textual analysis. We used that too and got basically the same result, about a 40% increase in regulatory intensity at the FDA over this period. What we have designed, and this fits into what people were talking about earlier, less risk-taking, okay? So it's not the FDA standing alone, it's the FDA uh, 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 under political pressure is that we are systematically suppressing the sort of innovations in biosciences that could actually cut costs and, and, and decrease the amount of resources needed by the healthcare sector. So our proposal is not to do a single thing to, to, to weaken safety, because no one will stand for that, okay? Not to sort of eliminate clinical efficacy, but move in another criteria that might be called economic efficacy, which is, can you show that the the treatment that you are proposing actually uses less resources, real resources, labor and capital, than what is out there already? And so it's a synthetic way, in in a heavily controlled market, of getting at this less cost. And I'll give you an example. The, uh, the, the new drug which is uh, being heavily discussed these days, expensive new drug, Sovaldi, for curing hepatitis C, clearly meets this criterion because it substitutes a low cost, a drug which uses very few resources for expensive transplants, hospital treatments, and so forth. Okay? So there's a clear-cut case of, of, of lower use of labor and capital, even though it looks expensive from the economic point of view, it is far better. So this is a this is both a difficult haul, but it's actually something that politically, potentially both Republicans and Democrats could agree on. The next proposal that we have goes to uh, exactly what Susan mentioned, a regulatory accumulation, which is how do you sort of make it easier to sort of clear the barnacles off the bottom of the boat, the regulations that are tough that, uh, that just impose in the aggregate um, more costs on businesses that are, than it's worth. And there's also the regulatory reform proposals floating around, but we designed one that we think actually can sort of function in a hostile political environment. And this is called the Regulatory Improvement Commission. Very simply what it is, it's a commission modeled on the base closing commissions that meets, identifies 20-25 regs to improve or get rid of. Notice that is unbiased in both directions. Okay. It puts it together as a package, sends it to Congress, which has an up or down vote, then sends it on to the president. It avoids all sorts of issues in terms of, you know, it, it embraces the politics rather than rejecting it. Now, At this point, this has been introduced as bipartisan bills in both the Senate and the House. It's uh, got two sponsors in the Senate. I can't remember exactly how many it has in the House at this point, but it's evenly balanced between Republicans and Democrats. It actually represents something that, even in the conflicted world that we live in where people can't agree on anything, that we think that both Republicans and Democrats can agree on this because it's small bites and it's trust building, moving along the lines to clearing the barnacles off the boat. So those are our two proposals. One is broadening the FDA's criteria to include economic efficacy so it doesn't systematically squelch disruptive innovation. And the other is setting up a regulatory improvement commission to help clean clean off and improve regs in a way that can be uh, supported
4: by both sides. We are perilously close to the point where everything has been said, but not everyone has said it. Uh, I want to open with a quote from Ned Phelps from his book, uh, from Mass Flourishings. There's nothing in the policy response in America that can be seen as as transformational change intended to reverse the stubborn slowdown of innovation. Uh, the, it, it has seemed to me that we have to try to begin to get at something that is as equivalently big as Ned Ned has been talking about. Uh, The revitalization of the medium-sized business sector and a a revolution in American education seemed to me two reasonably big ones. Uh, So what I wanted to suggest was a little bit of... uh, Wonkery, a little bit of history and a little bit of political science. The the wonkery is that even though Professor Tabarck blew this out of the water, I still am inclined to think that uh, not inclined to think. I still think strongly that the decline in startups and the decline in business formation is a problem. Uh, I don't know any big companies that didn't begin by being small companies, and. I don't know any criteria by which one chooses the the, the 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 relatively few firms that become the fast-growing firms that then hire the high proportion of people. That strikes me as a shots-on-goal kind of problem, or a times-at-bat. Forgive the sports meta- metaphors, uh, and therefore, I I would like to aim at it, to to wave the wand and and change the trend line of startups and business formations. Now, how do you do that? Um, I basically buy the notion, again, despite Professor Tabarak, who I thought was an absolutely fascinating presentation. Uh, but my own sense is that the I, that I took a year seminar a long time ago from Mansur Olson, and I believed him then, and I do now, that the slow, incremental, almost inexorable rise of both obvious and subtle barriers is 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 one of the problems. Uh, it's regulation at all levels. Uh, it's intellectual property. It's licensure. It's complexity. Uh, it's a deep pro-incumbency bias in the way our, our both our regulation and the Washington lobbying system works. Uh, and it is Ed Glazer, as Ed Glazer said, it's land use. Uh, so the way I want to proceed in 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 terms of increasing the rate of business formation is to attack that set of problems. Uh, that's the wonkery. The um, the political sciences that i don't i think it's uh... not possible to do it at the washington level i am all for the regulatory base closing commission uh... we've spoken to, to, to be, before and i disagreed uh... on an element of it but uh... don't see it as mutually exclusive but i just uh have some questions, but I also was very much impressed by the Florida essay and by the Glazer essays about the, the importance of American cities uh, as the new platforms for economic growth in the United States. And I would much rather see, to the second wave of the wand, is enabling legislation passed which allowed our cities to do this. And I'd start with one-stop shopping, and I'd broaden out from that, and I would broaden the notion that Glazer uh, presented extremely br- briefly of entrepreneurial districts. Uh, I've followed that with some interest. I think it has some real promise, and I'd broaden it considerably in terms of what they can actually do. It might even be that one aspect of the national base climate uh, regulatory base closing commission could be to refer to to. To, to make some distinctions and categorizations of regulations, that these are at the waterline and we have to handle them at a reg- national level, these really can be left to cities. There's, so there'd be ways to marry those. And the final one, which I won't sp- spend much time on because the last speaker is going to spend some time on it, um, but is to, to go back to, to history and to another book, which was Claudia Golden, Who was mentioned once in Larry Katz's book on the race between technology and education, which I think is really one of the profound books of the last 25 years. And the really signal aspect of that book is the whole middle couple of hundred pages in which they discuss the high school revolution. Uh, I suspected that if you measured educational attainment and quality of the labor force before the high school education, uh, the high school revolution began, that you would ri- arrive at many of the same conclusions that were arrived here, I think, by Dale Jorgensen, which is that we've sort of, uh, we've, we've sort of flattened out, that we've, we've educated the population to as much as we can, and then lo and behold, lots of people in small towns, not, nece- not at all directed by the federal government and not paid for it, decided that their kids weren't prepared for the world that was becoming, and they invented the high school. Um, I think that we're gonna need another invention. So my third wand is a big one. I want to see universal preschool education. Uh, I want to see, I, I'd, I'd like to see a, uh, really an, an, an opening up to market-like devo- devices uh, for the secondary education, elementary and secondary. But what I really want to see is a reinvention of post-secondary. And I, I'd like to see mini-credentialization uh, I, I'd like to see a way in which people can use the job churn in a post-secondary education and a lifelong education sense to constantly improve themselves. That is, the, I think, the only way uh, that, in the, that, looking at where we are now, we are going to significantly increase uh, educational attainment and the quality of the workforce. I'm done.
0: Bob. Uh- First of all, uh, those of you who saw original programs uh, will uh, uh, have seen another name instead of, uh, from the Kauffman Foundation, Dane Stangler, uh, who unfortunately uh, got caught up with a scheduled conflict at the last minute. Thank you so much for coming sure. in, uh, and pinch hitting. And uh, give your, uh, I, let me just in full disclosure, Bob and I are former colleagues as I worked at the Kauffman Foundation for a couple of years. So uh, as in you, your wind up to uh, waving uh, the magic wand, say okay. a little bit about Kauffman and what it does. Oh, Okay, fine. Uh, yeah, Kauffman
5: Foundation is, uh, is very interested in, in two things, uh, they're in, the foundation is interested in, um, uh, in education for uh, underserved kids in Kansas City, the foundation is based in Kansas City, uh, Ewing Kauffman was an entrepreneur in the pharmaceutical industry. Kansas City was sort of a strange place to start a pharmaceutical company. He wasn't, not, not New Jersey. Uh, uh, maybe didn't believe in a lot of the agglomeration literature that others have read, uh, but very successful in the pharmaceutical industry. And, um, and uh, when, he, when he sold his, his business in the uh, late 1980s, which Bo did start as a small business, um, uh, decided that he was going to, uh, to help underserved kids in, in Kansas City. Uh, receive an education that was gonna help to, to get them started in life. And part of that life that they were gonna get started in would involve uh, living in a healthy community. And a healthy community involves entrepreneurship with a dynamic uh, economic base and, uh, and, and uh, business formation and growth. So, so there would be jobs both with, with growing companies and, uh, and, and entrepreneur starting companies. Like many entrepreneurs who start foundations uh, you know, he said the number one thing in his life was, you know, what he saw of his employees and their families, and what happened because he started that business, and he sort of wanted to replicate that. It's so another story on how we got to research and policy work and entrepreneurship, but we'll leave that for another story. Um, so that's what the Koff Foundation is about: education and entrepreneurship, and that's very similar to the theme. Uh, that we're that we're looking at today, and uh, and I, I do want to focus, as Bo said, he and I talked briefly. Uh, my comments uh, on education, uh, uh, because again, it's I think it's really consistent with with Mr. Coffman's views that it's human capital that's really at the core of of a growing economy and at the core of entrepreneurship. I'm I'm very sympathetic with uh, with Susan and Michael's uh, issues on regulation. Um, I, I I started life as as an academic economist, and uh, and when people ask me why I came to the Kauffman Foundation, I said, I think it was a great sense of guilt. I probably started a thousand lectures with three words, assume a firm, and, and you can't assume a firm. Firms come from somewhere, and the interesting question is where they come from and how they come into being and how they grow, and not once they're around, what unique price quantity combination they set to maximize short-run profits. So, so, it's, um, so, so so the notion of, uh, of firms is important. And one of the things I realized is you've got to talk to entrepreneurs. And, and in talking to entrepreneurs, regulation is, is one thing that's, you know, there are a lot of things at the fringes. But, but they feel like they're, um, I, I'll call them regulation takers instead of regulation setters. I mean, they, they feel that, they, uh, that, that others, the big companies, the big guys set the rules in regulation uh, to satisfy them. And that and that prevents uh, prevents small firms from starting and growing. Yeah, t- taxes are an issue. All these other things are issues, but at the core, it's at, at the core it's regulations. I'm extraordinarily sympathetic to that. Um, but but in terms in terms of um, of education, we, we we've talked about it a lot uh, during the day and mentioned it in kind of bits bits and pieces. But I think a a, a major point I think I want to make is this idea of. Um, of uh, the, the 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 focus on on STEM education on science technology, uh, engineering and mathematics. It's terrific. It's great, uh, and we've 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 sort of I think viewed that as a way of, of um, of, of, of combating uh, some evil. Uh, in, in the fifties, we moved to STEM education because. You know, the Russians were the first ones to send Sputnik up in a, into space, and we had to combat that, so we had to, we had to teach kids math and science. Uh, more recently, it's been, uh, you know, the Asians are, are, are outperforming our kids in math and science, so we have to catch up with the Asians. Uh, as, as part of our conversation today, uh, you know, if in 10 years from now we want to ensure, ensure a growing economy, kids need to be technologically savvy. We need, to, we need to do science and math education, and we do, but what I'm afraid of is that it's gonna come at the expense of what a couple of people have mentioned today is what we actually do pretty well in this country in education. And the kinds of things that Ned Phelps was talking about in terms of in- encouraging kids to explore and create and find out things and have some intellectual curiosity. We wanna be able to find a-, a balance between those two. And, and, and my concern is that, uh, uh, that the opportunity cost may be too great if we move so far in one direction that we give up the other. Because one of the things that, uh, you know, Will Bommel early on talk, talked about incremental versus radical innovation. And I think science and technology education really gets us very good incremental innovation. But on the radical innovation side, I think it's more, it's more the liberal arts rather than the sciences. I've got this picture in mind. I don't know if you um, uh, have seen, uh, it, was, it was Steve Jobs presentation. I think I to his Google employees and I think it was on the introduction of the, of the iPad and he was standing under a, 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 a sign that was the inter, intersection of technology and liberal arts street. So he was standing at that intersection. And that, his, and that was his talk to his employees, is that yeah, we're all about technology uh, here, 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 at, here at Apple, but, but it's, it's, really, it's really that liberal arts. And he really interchanged liberal arts and humanities as, as, as part of his conversation. And I think it's through that, through that combination uh, that that we're really going to be cr- able to create an educational system that's conducive to the kinds of uh, radical innovations uh, that are going to be necessary to to continue and to sustain economic growth. Yeah, it might it might not be for 10 years if we work on changing the education system. But uh, you know we've we've criticized uh, uh, short. Short-run, short-termism kinds of things here. So I think we can. I think we can look at, at at a longer, a much longer term, much longer framework. So how do we get this done? Well, I'll disclaim or disavow any uh, any any, any uh, uh, references to being a wonk. Kansas City, there's not much wonkery in Kansas City. Uh, uh, spent most of my life as an academic economist. Just spent a little time in the Federal Reserve System. Won't claim to be a wonk. Uh, but there are a couple of things I think that are important from the human capital perspective in education. And, and you, can, you can treat it very, very broadly. But I'm going to focus narrowly for the time being on teachers. Uh, because obviously they're the ones who deliver education to the kids. And there are a number of things working against us in the current education system and the way it's developed and the way it's evolved. And it's tough to change it. Um, John Haltewanger and his uh, presentation, mentioned uh, a couple of things, a couple of new papers he's working on. Um, uh, one on, on the impact of uh, more uh, of, of the, 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 the state legislation at at will kinds of employment issues, and the other is, uh, is licensure. And if you think about elementary and secondary education, I'll stay out of those issues in higher education for the time <laughs> being, uh, but if you think about those issues in elementary education. Um, uh, the licensing issues create barriers to entry into education that um, uh, certainly don't serve kids well and, and a lot of uh, research has shown that the kids that serve least well are the kids who need the education most. And the, um, uh, the uh, notion of, of, of at will uh, translated into teacher tenure. Is uh, is is another big issue, and, and Brad, who who also Brad and I were also colleagues at Kaufman for a year. Uh, his 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 discussion of tenure, I think, is uh, is is right on. And 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 how do we, how do we allow more people into uh, the education system as qualified teachers and provide them with career paths uh, through which they can succeed, and 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 their productivity uh, is is rewarded. It starts with teacher preparation. It starts with teach- colleges of teacher education. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to colleges of teacher education, but I think they could, could do a lot more to focus on, on content, area, content area preparation and, and, and the methods preparation being almost an apprenticeship kind of, kind of program. So I'd, I'd, I'd want to change that. The returns to an edu- education degree are pitifully low. Uh, if, if you look at census data and the, and the, and the person who decides to major in, in elementary or secondary education, the returns to that education are a whole lot lower than other education. So, so a, a rational person may, may not choose that as a career, except in the kinds of um, uh, discrimination that, that that Brad was talking about uh, in, in, in his presentation. And, and, and we're, we're not allowing a lot of other people who may have a lot to bring to the education system to come in to come and go in the education system and and, and teach kids because of a lot of the licensing requirements so teacher preparation licensing career paths are, are three things that I think need uh, need changing in the education system how to get those done uh, that's a uh, that's a big nut to crack I, I have the, the pleasure of, of chairing a, a charter school the coffin Foundation started a charter school in Kansas City we're in our, our fourth year now and the school has, consistent with Mr. Kaufman's uh, uh, aims for his foundation, identified the, the six or seven lowest income zip codes as the catchment area for the, uh, for the kids coming to, to that charter school. And um, uh, charter schools are, 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 are good. I think the kids in that school are, are learning. I think they're doing a lot better than they would have otherwise. Uh, their parents are, are, are knocking the doors down to get their kids into the school. Uh, is, is that a solution to, uh, to our education problems? Not on a large scale, but I think on, on, on a small scale, I think it can be. I think we get really bright young people who are interested in coming into education, spending a few years then, moving on, requires a lot of churning in education. But it's, a, um, uh, it's, it, it, it's one, one possibility, but it's, it, it's a small part of the puzzle.
0: Let me go back to uh, uh, both of you mentioned regulatory process reform. Uh, and pretty much anyone who ever gets into regulatory policy will will get sucked into some sort of idea for regulatory mm-hmm. policy reform because otherwise the, the field is just swallows you up. There's so many details, there's so many... When you say regulation there's there's jillions of different kinds and and then once you start talking about the details you get lost in those details so how do you get up to 30,000 feet where you can do something that matters you have to have meta-policy, policy about how policy is made. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but uh, so in theory like regulatory process reform feels like the only way to get real purchase on it but time and again clever regulatory process ideas have been tried and have been uh, and haven't worked uh, largely because they've been subverted by people who don't agree with them so uh, so if you're trying to force people to do what they don't want to do they're pretty clever and they work their ways around it so you've come up with some uh, measure for how to get around that but just in general talk about uh, how hopeful one can be about the concept of regulatory process reform in light of its less than stellar track record? Well, I,
3: I think what we've discovered is that certain types of regulatory process reform that are problematic. We've tried retrospective review within within agencies. Every every president since Jimmy Carter has tried this with. Uh, with not much success, and the reason has partly been given that the agencies are resistant, but the fact is is that that's only part of the issue. I mean, part of the issue is, is that regulations are political animals. Undoing regulations is a political process too. Any time you try to do a, a regulatory reform and pretend that it's a technocratic event, it's not going to work. Okay? Because the politics just sort of flow back in again. And really, uh, when we talk about the Regulatory Improvement Commission, the real innovation there is that, is that we embrace the politics. We say, we believe that, in fact, there's enough consensus in Washington to actually do certain things if presented right. And that what the Regulatory Improvement Commission does gives Congress, doesn't cut Congress out of the process, which a lot of these other proposals do, basically says... Look, Congress gets two bites of the apple, one when they set up the commission and one when they vote on what the fixes are. And so that's kind of, that's. I would say we're in Washington. I don't know if I consider myself a wonk. Okay, I like to think that I'm just kind of practical. I want to do something that's actually going to work and move forward. And I think that given the political tensions here, Something that pretends that the politics don't exist is going to be submarined by somebody. So that's what we've done here is we've kind of embraced the politics. I don't know,
0: Susan. You've done regulatory process for a living. You know its promise and shortcomings at OIRA. Uh, so how did how did that experience? How does that shape your thinking about how to get the beast under control?
1: Yeah, and I think control. You know, accountability for regulation is key when we think about. Regulation is one of the two main ways that we achieve public policy. the other is through the budget and through um, spending programs on budget and with that we have we have the fiscal budget that the President sends to Congress every year. Congress has to appropriate funds, and every year we evaluate how those programs are working. So there actually is a lot of evaluation of how that works with regulation, there's much less accountability. Congress passes legislation often very sweeping legislation that allows agencies to regulate for for decades under that broad authority for example the Clean Air Act we're regulating greenhouse gas emissions under language that was actually written in 1970 or passed in in 1970 so um, there isn't that same accountability in fact Congress I think really has the best of all worlds of course I've never worked on the Hill but um, maybe I would have a different experience, but they get to pass legislation like Clean Air Act and who would oppose clean air. So they take the credit for passing feel-good issues, but then when it doesn't work out, if their constituents don't like the actual implementation, well, it's the agency's fault. So I'd like to see more accountability from Congress. Um, I think maybe more accountability from the judiciary. and. Um, we need to change the incentives in the executive branch too we have a lot of processes in place and analytical tools but they're just not working
0: so we've had this lovely day of high-minded intellectual exchange uh, but the word politics keeps cropping up in this uh, in this, yeah. Panel. this panel, is yeah. Not the yeah, panel yeah no, so let's just let's just di- let's dive into the muck and uh, and think about uh, the the political angle for uh, for a response uh, to uh, to our slow growth challenge, uh, is it uh, just more general? Just generally, is our ram- ramshackle, polarized political system capable of a constructive response? Uh,
3: so, I'm going to give a really, really
0: unpopular
3: view in this room, and, and, and as was said before about the witness protection program, I think I need it now. Um, you know, when people used to talk about the barriers to entrepreneurship one of them thing they talked about was the lack of portable health care. Okay? Now, whatever you want to say about Obamacare and its failures and its strength and its problems, that we could wax poetic forever on this debate and then we'd have giant fistfights and nobody would ever get out of this room. It does provide entrepreneurs with health care, which is no longer tied to big companies. Okay? And so you can actually consider that to be an outcome, something that has happened in Washington, you know, over the last eight years. Now, whenever anybody used to talk about the inability of Washington to get things done, they would always point to healthcare reform. Now, once healthcare reform, well, we know what happened. Now, we don't have to go <laughs> into this. Okay, uh, I mean, I'm not even gonna get into that, but I, I think that, that we do have the capability to get stuff done. We do have the capability to find things that are in the overlap between are two hostile political parties. And so I'm actually not as negative or pessimistic at all, as, as a lot of people are at, at, at this point.
1: I mentioned that I, I told you at lunch I really have no political radar at all. But I, I want to go back to your opening remarks, okay. Brink, when you talked about the 1970s, where we had a period of bipartisan. Um, support, and um, maybe Bo can tell us more about it because he was part of that in in the Carter (laughs) administration, OMB, where we had um, real deregulation of previously regulated industries. And it was in part because we saw that the regulation that was purported to protect consumers really was protecting the, the regulated parties. And so it was that. And in part, that we were able to see that because there were natural experiments. The airlines, in particular, we had intrastate airlines that were much more efficient, lower cost, higher quality, and they weren't regulated by the federal Civil Aeronautics Board. So, in the Carter administration, Alfred Kahn, as head of the Civil Aeronautics Board, really started to dismantle it. And that was bipartisan, it was all branches of government. And I think to, we See that as a as a success today, um, innovation in ways that we didn't could not have anticipated then.
0: I want to turn to you, Bo, and and, uh, and and get your thoughts on this question. Let me just throw out my own, uh, semi-speculative basis for optimism, uh, which uh, which is that I I, <clears throat> I have a conjecture that there is an inverse relationship uh, between the. External conditions for growth, on the one hand, and the quality of economic policymaking, on the other. That is, when the conditions for growth are incredibly favorable and you can just sort of fall on your face and grow five percent a year, then policymakers don't have to do a very good job to post adequate numbers. Um, <clears throat> but uh, if constraints, if if the external conditions for growth grow less favorable, then the constraints on policymakers tighten. They have to do a better job, or economic performance will falter. If economic performance falters. The other party starts uh, gaining in the popularity polls. So uh, there is, I think, the silver lining for all the doom and gloom we've been talking about uh, uh, today uh, is that uh, politicians have less maneuvering room uh, than they did before. Uh, and so uh, my sense is a whole bunch of policies which previously have been considered completely untouchable and, and oh, we can't do anything about that, because... Why expend all this political capital when things are going okay anyway? Uh, when things aren't going well, then you start getting more creative about uh, uh, trying to find remedies. So that's that's, my, that's what gets me out of bed every morning to come uh, <laughs> work on uh, pro-growth policies. Uh, and in particular, I, I, am, uh, I know now uh, the, the political system and culture are very different than they were in the 1970s and many things have, have pushed us towards this more polarized uh, uh, setup, but uh, but we do have occasions in the past of uh, growth breakdown or economic performance breakdown, stagflation, leading to all these weird uh, uh, coalitions across usual ideological lines. You were in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. So is, is, is there? history doesn't repeat itself. It does sometimes rhyme. Is it possible that over the next decade uh, we could rhyme with the 70s?
4: Let me extend the comments a, a little bit. Um, Alfred Kahn... Functioned out of my offices, and uh, we at OMB—I was running OMB at the time—basically uh, provided him with his, uh, uh, with his platform, and the the single.
1: Sorry, was that at KALPS or at at CAB?
4: N- no, it was uh, the, the it was Williams. run. Out of, no, I, I it, the cons. Efforts were actually run out of OMB. He wasn't an OMB employee. There was a separate. He had a. He had a separate function of his own. I've forgotten kind of how we set it up, but uh, I basically dealt with with him every day. Uh, the principal. You're right. the 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 principal selling point was, for God's sake, look where we are in the in, in the economy. We have we have low growth. We have high inflation. Uh, there has to be some way of of beginning to get costs down. Uh, and you could sell that to just enough people to get a thing through. Uh, it, was up, it was root canal the entire way. <laughs> and it led me to two points of view uh, diving into the muck of politics. Point of view one is that if you're going to do anything in Washington now, of which I am deeply, deeply skeptical, but if you're going to, you need you need two conditions that are both necessary. Uh, one is you do have to make a, a kind of fundamental economic argument. You not make it. You can't make a good government argument and win this. And the second is that the the way you frame it has to get yourself out of the terrain of the current endlessly tiresome debate between the right and the left. Uh, and it it, it therefore. You have to put it in some framework such as Ned Phelps's mass flourishings but put in a way that, uh, that it could be understood in Washington. It has, to, it has to have a broader purpose, and that has to be the purpose people argue for. The problem with Washington is that there's no one particularly responsible for that end result, uh, and it's all done fairly abstractly. By that end result, I mean the improvement of the economy which is why my close to last hope is the mayors. Uh, Mayors are, mayors have have authority. Uh, They actually have to deliver the garbage or pick up the garbage. They don't deliver it, that's a a slip. And they, uh, that's the postal service. service. Uh, They get defeated if they don't. Uh, If they don't pick up the snow, they're gone. and it's an interesting confluence of uh, the, the, America's big cities are a kind of interesting combination of areas that are big enough to be real economic units and at the same time are close enough for intensive face-to-face involvement. And I would, tr- the, so the other thing I think we must try is some way of passing a lot of these decisions to mayors.
3: Let me just add one thing to that. I've done uh, over the last year reports on the New York and London tech economies and how successful the mayors in both of those very large, difficult to move economies were able to do low cost, low cost actions that fostered a lot of growth there. And, you know, when I first looked at New York, I was really disbelieving that you could actually move the tech sector enough to sort of actually help an economy as big as New York, but it turned out that the, some of the programs that Bloomberg put in place that were not that expensive, that had to do with redirecting the, the government bureaucracy and focusing attention, worked really well. So I think you've, you've got something there in terms of the mayors.
5: I want to chip in on the mayor's
3: idea, too, and not, not necessarily only the, the, the mega
5: cities, but uh, for the past two or three years, uh, we've been holding conferences for mayors of primarily mid-sized cities. And the mayors are falling over themselves to host this thing, and to and to show an entrepreneurship and and to and to show the entrepreneurs that they're they're on their side, and and I think in terms of oh your your notion of uh, of dealing with economic growth, um, you know, uh, I think twenty years ago the word entrepreneur then a very positive connotation, and and I think that's changed a lot in the last twenty years, and I think I think from a mayor's perspective too of having their community being an entrepreneurial community. Uh, shines a light on them, and, and it's good for their community. And, it's, and it's, it's more than just trying to attract, you know, the latest uh, uh, auto assembly plant or whatever it is from, from, from Japan or Korea.
0: Let's let the audience in on this. Uh, questions? Uh, Phil, right up here. Here. We'll get you. I think we all agree that the, uh, uh, we need to improve the educational system. Uh, do you think that the Common Core program is going to do that?
5: <laughs> uh, by, by, by itself, no. Um, the uh, uh, my own home state, Missouri, is now just finding a way that they are 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 not going to adopt the Common Core program and and uh, and, and find a way to to change it. Um, uh, edu- education uh, reform goals are often. Uh, very cyclical, and uh, when I was, was an academic, if there was a new dean, you didn't like the new dean, you could wait him out for about five years. And, and often education reform of that nature is that way. I'm, I'm, it's, I think it's better than what it's replacing, but I, 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 I don't think it's the answer. I don't, I don't think it can work without these other broader systemic changes.
0: Right here in the third row.
6: Thanks, Uh, Phil Harvey, uh, uh, DKT Liberty Project. Um, If it is true, as I believe it is, that economic development in poor countries is both more rapid and more predictable than it is in the advanced economies, um, is part of what we're addressing here today in many, many, many different ways simply uh, a function of being too rich uh, and if that is so, then it seems to me that there's only about half of this melon that that we can have any influence over. Uh, and that's the scraping off of the barnacles that uh, several of you have, have been uh, talking about. Uh, uh, poor countries don't have nearly as many barnacles, and that, that gives them an opportunity to to do a lot of things without licenses and and regulations that we can't do here. Uh, On the other hand, they also have a lot of things they haven't done yet that we have, so there's more that they can do. Uh, Just, I'd be interested in your comments on whether we've just topped out, and maybe we shouldn't be so worried about it.
3: That's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, Let's actually, uh, part of the way that I think about it is that maybe what we've done is we've transferred 10 years of growth to the developing countries in terms of globalization. And that's uh, taken that way. Maybe that's a good thing. But I think it's important for the developed countries, and I'm including the U.S. and Japan and Europe, to keep moving up the ladder in terms of innovation, in order to make room for the developing countries. So we, whether or not we're too rich or not, to keep moving up. I think it's, uh, the the global system doesn't work right unless we can keep growing, keep advancing, in the ways that Eric mentioned, in the ways in terms of biosciences and everything else that we're investing in, that the developing countries can't afford to make those sort of R&D investments. So I view this in part as, as, as an obligation, as well as something that we have to do for ourselves.
4: Let me add, to the, let me add something to that. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm not certain that your predicate's right. Uh, I would be willing to bet that there's more volatility over 5, 10, and 20-year periods in, in most categories of developing economies than there are in the developed economies. That's first. Second, the I chaired CARE for a decade. I run a fairly major project right now in North Africa. The, the incrustation of, of regulation rules and licensure in many, many developed countries is vastly thicker than it is here. Uh, we're roughly now 46th in the world, as someone said in one of the essays, of, uh, in ease of doing a business, in, in ease of starting a business. Uh, most developed developing economies are way below that. Uh, the What I've found is that it, it, it may be possible here to to suggest that the startups are not the issue, that that regulation isn't the issue. You cannot say that anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa and in most of India. Uh, And they really face the same kinds of problems that we've talked here, is that how do you get rid of that stuff? And there is, in your ultimate fairly bleak point or question... uh, you know, some very, very smart people have come out where you came, came out. As I said earlier, I spent a seminar, a year's seminar with Mansur Olson, and that was essentially uh, his, his conclusion. I think it's the common hope here that uh, you can use public policy innovation and some uh, smart thinking about political science to reverse some of that.
2: i am andrew reamer research professor at george washington university institute of public policy um i'd like to ask the panelists uh your view about what improvements in information and statistics would be helpful to facilitate better decision making by people in the public and the private sector so i'm talking about federal information and statistical policy the feds could produce the data they could catalyze the private sector to produce the data but Basically, we live in a, a information a world driven by information. There's lots of market fail, information market failures, particularly say in the labor market. Um, so what? Uh, and I want to get Michael to talk about productivity.
4: Well, I can. I mean, I
0: don't mean to. Well, not. first, yeah. First on uh, what information? What government? What new statistical information would you like to, or should policymakers have
4: access? You want to go first. I'll do one. Uh, I'll do two things. There is a fascinating project at NYU uh, that's uh, managed by Beth Novick, who was the, uh, the Deputy Chief Information Officer of the United States a while, shortly, just, just not all that long ago, called, called the, Gov, the, the, the Gov Lab. And they focus quite specifically on the use of information technology uh, data to improve governments with their principal f- focus being on local governments and, and cities. And what is absolutely amazing is how, how much scope there really is to do it, and to make government dramatically, dramatically better. Uh, the, so w- without being able, to the details take forever, but without being, the, you're onto something. The, the second is that I, what I'd like to see Is a city by city ease of starting a business index. Uh, I'm just amazed when I go to developing economies and talk to the minister of finance or talk to the minister of the central bank heads that they pull that out and talk about how they've changed. I'd love to see a race to the top uh, among Americans, America's mayors. So let me um, go.
3: Your proposal is so much more practical than mine. Okay, Let me just actually sort of uh, raise some broader issues here. Right, our, main, our main economic measures, which are GDP and the unemployment rate, were constructed during the Great Depression and during World War II. They date back to, at the latest the, 19, the latest, the 1940s. They haven't, they've been a lot of incremental improvements, but basically they've, they've stayed the same. We have access to all sorts of other information at this point that potentially are, are, are good measures of how we are doing as an economy. Let me give you two of them that I've worked with. One is there's all sorts of cross-border data flows at this point that we simply do not measure very important, very significant for globalization, very significant for for vitality, okay, and significant for economic trade that are just not included in the economic statistics at all because they don't leave a monetary footprint behind when the bits and bytes cross borders. That's important, okay? The second thing is, and this is, we're getting, I just recently did a study that looked at um, uh, LinkedIn connections by city, okay, and the density of connections, and it turns out, this is just a preliminary study, it turns out that, the dense, that cities, metro areas that have denser connections have had faster job growth. It's a very strong result. Is it causality, is it correlation? It's very tough to know at this point. But the fact is we have, you know, it may very well be that there's measures, statistical measures of the economy that we could not collect before because we didn't have the technology. And we have to start thinking about doing this. Now, this is, I I can't remember who said this earlier. There's an obligatory obligatory statement that when you talk about economic statistics, you have to say, look, the statistical agencies are doing the best they can with the money that they have. That's just the way it goes. So we have to decide, and it's not, we have to decide as 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 an economy whether or not we want to actually invest some money in... New measures, better measures, and it may be that it that it was not going to happen until there's a until there's a crisis that's big enough to force us to uh, to do this. But the fact is, there's data out there coming out of our ears. If we knew what to do with it,
0: let me just mention on the uh, doing business uh, rankings. Uh, since I see Michael Hendricks uh, in the audience from the US Chamber of Commerce uh, foundation they had started uh, uh, they I believe their first report was with 10 cities they consulted with Ed Glazer on the uh, on the uh, methodology uh, so and there are a number of other projects uh, similarly along the way, uh, similarly uh, sort of in the works, uh, it would be wonderful to have one that caused mayors to quake in fear with the same, to the same degree that doing business
4: rankings do. Who to would have thought a decade ago that the president of an African country would pull that out and show it to you? Yeah. The, the, the,
0: it's a little bit like business
3: school rankings, right? You, that's you, you, right, exactly you right. need the fear to that's sort of right. make them you change things. You need the things. fear, you need the fear. Okay. Uh, right here. Here in the fourth row, Fifth, yeah, there we go, you're next. Uh, Milton Eaton, uh, Ethan Allen Institute. Uh, all of our figures and what we've been talking about have been the smaller entrepreneur. And uh, I spent a great deal of time, uh, both in the government and in private sector, dealing with how much R&D uh, the large corporations were doing. And uh, it's a very important part. and. Uh, what do you see that would be recommendable to help encourage their continued efforts in R&D? I think I was supposed to see the R&D tax credit, okay? (laughs) Look, here's the thing, okay? We have a lot of R&D going on, and the question, and this relates back to the regulatory questions, okay? Which is, it's both the R&D and then the regulatory environment that allows you to make use of the R&D. And especially in biosciences, there's an enormous amount of spending that's going on. The question is: Is it translating into real changes in the economy and what people can do? Whether or not it's measured by death rates, okay, or by the cost of health care or any other measure that you want to do. So, R&D tax credit to begin with, making it permanent is a is a no-brainer. But at the same time, we as a culture is everything else that we've been talking about here how to sort of make it clear that innovation is welcomed okay and respected and not dumped on fair enough
0: and in the back gentleman in the light blue shirt
5: hi i'm uh, john swallow arlington virginia i'm, I'm- I was stunned that uh, we're 46 in the world for starting a business. I knew we were low, but not that low. Um, <clears throat> i have known for about a decade or so. There was a study that if the federal government was run like a business, efficiently, uh, tax rates would be basically the same. This isn't a comment on how they, what programs should be involved, but that the economy would be twice as big as it current. It would grow to be twice as big as it currently is. Uh, I think it's an uh, uh, institute in Houston, Texas, or national policy, something. I can't remember. the. Uh, you, what, do you, what do you all think about that, especially Ms. Dudley?
0: That sounds like a very aggressive upside. Yeah, that would have been a humongous <laughs> growth rate.
1: Yeah, it sounds interesting. I'll look it up. <laughs>
0: uh, and right down here in front.
2: Gordon Johnson, I'm a retired manufacturer with customers in 90 countries around the world. Uh, we've. Uh, my question has to do with corporate taxes, basically, uh, and 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 because when we talk about innovation in business, think about the tremendous innovation efforts that go on to avoid taxes, uh, and and this is a lot of money. I once. I once spent $50,000 and complained to Price Waterhouse, and they said, but we saved you $100,000. Uh, this is a wrong direction for innovation. It hurts the country. Uh, um, my question, And more wrong decisions are made in business for tax reasons than any other. My question, here we are in Hayek's auditorium. Hayek said we should be good gardeners. He didn't say we should be good planners. Uh, we need to keep focused on, it seems to me, how do we encourage uh, growth rather than direct growth? And that leads to then, we've got the highest corporate tax rate in the world. We've got to reduce it, but it's not popular to do that. Why It's tremendously complicated. What would the panel think of perhaps not reducing the corporate tax rate as such very far, but abolishing all of the the, the uh, special corporate welfare stuff that's there in the exemptions and instead giving every corporation a $10,000 cut tax credit for every employee that they have employed. And in this way, perhaps per, and change management's incentives from trying to find ma- machines to put them out of business to at least say, if you're going to put them out of business, uh, you you'll uh, have to pay a little more taxes and that might direct their attention towards keeping people be politically acceptable and reduce the corporate tax rate significantly down to maybe 15%. Uh,
1: <clears throat>
4: a number of the essays uh, had some very intelligent, smart things to say about corporate taxes uh, you could sum them all up as follows. This is not to do justice to some really very good pieces. One is that our peculiar system of a high overall rate, which we lower by giving a series of arbitrary benefits to people who can argue the best for them is not a particularly good system. So the the the, the more we could apply what has been a, a decades old uh, philosophy of, of tax reform which is uh, which is lower the base uh, increase the base and lower the rates the, the, the more we can apply that to corporations the better uh, I would believe and I and I think the country would be far better off with a significantly lower rate and a lot fewer of the arbitrary deductions uh, the other has uh, the other kind of vein of discussion in the essays which I was also quite sympathetic for was is are there ways that in uh, Outside of the corporation, the, the corporate tax that we can stop taxing goods like work, like work, and begin taxing some other things. Uh, Professor Maron from uh, the Urban Institute had a fascinating uh, essay on the substitution of a carbon tax, of a of a graduated progressive carbon tax, for um, uh, for much of the corporate tax, as an example. Uh, so I don't think that there's any disagreement that the corporate tax is badly in need of reform. And that, that might very well be another thing that you could, you could in fact get uh, the current sad debates between the right and the left focused in a somewhat more productive direction.
5: One of the other essays too, uh, Enrico Moretti's essay yeah, on, on
4: an innovator's
5: tax... For you, it was tax credit or tax cut. It co- was credit. was was it? Was a, credit. Yeah, was, it was a, a, I think
0: well, well, Um We've uh, reached five fifteen, which is the official uh, close time for this conference. Uh, I want to thank uh, the uh, panelists. Uh, uh, both in this panel and all the others uh, for their wonderful contributions today, uh, let me just say to you if uh, if your idea of a good time a uh, uh, fun way to spend an afternoon and sit around listening to people talk about pro growth policy reforms, uh, then have I got a treat for you uh, <clears throat> i 've got fifty one different people who can uh, who can uh, uh, tell you what they think uh, in our Cato uh, online forum on reviving growth. You can t- currently find it on the main Cato uh, uh, web page uh, down at the bottom. Uh, eventually, uh, it will. Uh, the, your best bet will just to Google Cato growth forum and you'll find it. Uh, but again, uh, a wealth of interesting uh, ideas, uh, uh, many of which I agree with, uh, <laughs> about how to push uh, the economy uh, onto a higher performance level. Uh, Again, uh, let me just thank our uh, our Cato conference staff for their wonderful job they always do. Uh, Let me thank uh, the Cato web staff and my uh, research assistant, Chelsea German, for bringing that whole online forum together. Thank all of you for your interest and thank the uh, panelists for their insights. Thank Thank
6: you.